The following is brought to you by TheKnowledge.com, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for September 22nd, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young, coming to you live, well, as live, from Austin, Texas. And uh, we got we got a really good show. I really like this show. I'm going to talk about two things that I very, very rarely talk about. And in fact, it is among the most requested things that I get to talk about, uh, I mean, there are three. Three things that I get requested to talk about a lot. Number one, British politics. Number two, Canadian politics. And number three, Australian politics. Now, I talk a little bit of British politics. That's why we have Tom Merritt on as our UK correspondent. But I very rarely talk about Canadian politics, and I very even more rarely talk about Australian politics. And yet in this show, I'm going to talk about both. Not before we go through a little domestic stuff first. And and that is that, boy, the Democrats are playing a dangerous game right now. Very, 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 very dangerous. In fact, I don't think it's really getting enough coverage. The kind of confluence the nor'easter of many different, very troubling weather patterns that are now converging onto Congress. The Democrats can't agree with each other, and now we are starting to get into when the Congress needs to deal with other stuff. So we're going to break down this mess in a second. On the Australian side, I've been transfixed by some of these videos that are coming out of Australia with the uh, protests that are happening. And I'm going to break down what I have found, not only in terms of what we have seen, the, the video of people running through police lines and storming into union headquarters, but also uh, we're going to, we're going to delve deep into a Washington post story about the fact that Australia did what America couldn't, and that is close states off from each other. Now, granted, they got fewer states and they're easier to close off, but there are consequences to that as Australia, you know, is only months away from entering into year three of COVID restrictions. And finally, on the Canadian side, we welcome back our boy, Evan Scrimshaw. He is our betting expert. He is also Canadian. This was a great, great, great conversation. Not only does the man educate me on what happened during Monday's Canadian elections, wherein Justin Trudeau and the Liberals retained their uh, control of Parliament, but not a majority of parliament. We break down the liberals. We break down uh, some very harsh words for Jagmeet Singh. And then we turn our eyes to both Virginia and Texas. Yeah, we not only get a, a an early prediction of Abbott versus Beto and a line, a line for which Scrimshaw says he would max bet twice. He would take Beto plus this spread twice, which I guess kind of gives away where he thinks the election's going to go. And also a very degenerate political gambling pick that I am going to hammer as soon as I am done talking. But first... I wish I had a better way to explain all this, but the 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 song remains the same. 
Senate passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Went to the House. The progressives said, uh-uh, not going to vote for it unless we also get a reconciliation bill that is much larger that no Republican is going to support. We got of uh, uh, the thinnest of possible majorities in the Senate. We have a very thin majority in the House. Let's ram this sucker through reconciliation style. But we don't want these lily-livered moderates getting what they want with the bipartisan stuff and then not having the scrote to move on with the reconciliation bill. So you do not get your dessert until you eat your meat. And... Then in the Senate, Kristen Cinema, Joe Manchin, they say, absolutely not. We're not moving forward with the reconciliation bill. If it's $3.5 trillion, it's just way too damn much. So the House is waiting for the Senate uh, reconciliation bill, and the Senate is not going to give it to them. So where do we go? Right now, we have no idea. You know, you, you you presume that there is back channel conversations between President Joe Biden and Senator Joe Manchin. But so far, at least, we have not seen much movement from Manchin. Indeed, he has repeated the thing that you do not want him to repeat if you are a member of the Democratic Party. That, you know, with all this reconciliation talk... I think we should hit a strategic pause until next year. Which, if you believe what he is saying there, or let me let me let me interpret what he's saying there, rather. Him saying, Manchin saying that the reconciliation bill should take a strategic pause until 2022 is basically like telling everybody who wants to see it pass that they should take a strategic pause from breathing until 2022. It kills it. We would not be looking at the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, which would be the bulk of what Biden wants to do in his first term. And now look, this is partly how Congress works. You get through these situations, you have seemingly intractable positions, and then somebody buckles like a belt. Yet thus far, the progressives have said, we don't want to vote for anything less than $3.5 trillion. Manchin has said, I'm not voting for anything at $3.5 trillion. And we can probably take a wild guess that there are more people like Manchin that have his same position, but don't necessarily want to talk about it. There's one more note on this that is news. Number one, the House will, in six days from when I record this, so five days from when you hear it, vote on the bipartisan bill on September 27th, as was the deal made between the House moderates and Nancy Pelosi to advance the reconciliation process to the Senate. Now, while there does remain the possibility that the Republicans could just vote for this and move it on and leave the Democrats with literally no leverage, it looks like that version of the bill will fail, that the Republicans don't want to vote for it and the progressives are going to sink it. Now, that does mean that should all of this fall apart, that anybody who is running against a Democrat will be able to say, well, I mean, anybody who's running against anybody will be able to say that the Democrats screwed up. They had the ball. They couldn't score with it. But that's not even what I want to talk about here. I don't even want to talk about it. I don't even want to talk about it. Uh, I, look, the problem that the Democrats have right now is that we're also up against a couple other massive, massive congressional problems. 
All right. Let, let me just go ahead and, and ask you guys to do a little bit of a visualization exercise. Okay. Imagine I'm one of those like business and executive coaches. I need you to close your eyes. Not if you're driving, I need you to close your eyes. Not if you're watching your children, but in general, if you are not doing those two things, please close your eyes and visualize the last time that you have been looking at a television and the following subject was the topic of the day a shutdown of the government. Go ahead and visualize it. Visualize all the talking heads getting red-faced, all the finger-pointing politicians. This is the end of the world. How can the government possibly even function if they can't agree to function in the first place? Now wipe that from your mind. Wipe that from your mind. And now I want you to visualize the debt ceiling. Will America default on its debts? Will Congress not be able to get together? And will they have to, uh, you know, will, will, will we default? Will the good faith and credit of the United States be damaged? Therefore, doing tremendous, tremendous harm to our economy. Now wipe that from your mind. Because I'm telling you right now that over the next Two months, I mean, less than that, really a month. The Democrats have to deal with all three. Pushing forward this massive reconciliation package and the, the bipartisan version that's already been passed in the Senate. Raising the debt ceiling and funding the government. They got to do all of those things at the same damn Time. Now, it's Congress. Nothing gets done until the 11th and a half hour. And even then, that would be early. So I'm not here to predict that this will end in failure. However, we do need to be honest about opening our eyes and taking a look around at the scenery. And that scenery right now is a government that might get shut down because there's no funding for it, a debt limit that might not get raised and therefore have tremendous ramifications to the economic state of the United States of America, and that Joe Biden would go 0 for 2 on his two biggest bills because his own party couldn't get on the same page. This is possible. Likely? I don't think so. Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, they're pros. This ain't the first time that they have come uh, up against big, 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 big deadlines. And by and large, they've gotten them to work. Whether or not they're great solutions, whether or not everybody's pleased with them, they get to the finish line. But boy, if they don't, the consequences here are pretty brutal. And if they haven't been able to solve just their own legislative priorities, what happens when they start getting into fights about things that regularly become complicated? And when you're already unable to deal with one complicated thing, what happens? When you add two more. All right, here's the top line with Australia and COVID. They've suffered 1,178 deaths from the disease to September 21st while I'm talking to you. For a country of 36 million, that's 46 deaths per million. Compare that to the United Kingdom at 1,980 deaths per million, Italy at 2,160 deaths per million, and the United States at 20 or 2,084 deaths per million. It's got a 48.6% population coverage for the vaccine, according to Bloomberg. This has been achieved by strict and persistent lockdowns as well as border restrictions between the states. Now, cases 
dwindled down to the low double digits in September of 2020 and stayed there, often in the single digits to non-existent numbers, until July of this year. So that's damn near a year where everything in Australia felt a little bit COVID-free. And then, of course, Delta cases spiked to their highest level this month, and cases have peaked at 2,000 in one day, that day, morbidly, being September 11th. Now, what I want to focus on here is some of the stuff, coverage that I have read out of Australia over the past week that has been fascinating to me. And that is protests that are happening and general angst that Australians seem to have becoming weary of persistent lockdowns and and restrictions for so long. And the two biggest sources of my frustration, uh, of, of that frustration based on my cursory research is twofold. The closure of Australian states to each other based on local decision, and that's important, and vaccine mandates. Let's tackle the first. Number one, there seems to have been a a big kind of hypothetical question that was resolved amongst Australians, which is exactly how much local control their states had over federal control. And it appears that Australian states have some pretty big local control. In an article for the Washington Post Monday, Michael Miller profiles a class of nomads that have been created by this border closure phenomenon. Men and women, many in their 50s and up, who have found themselves on the wrong side of a border closure and now have to find somewhere in the outback to stay while they wait for proper paperwork from the the, the local state that they want to cross into to be cleared. Now, if you happen to live more than one state away, so let's say you drove you drove through another state or it makes the most sense for you to drive through one state to get to the state that you need to that you live in, that means that you need two states to clear you from here to there. Now, if you get caught trying to run past that border, it's a $1000 fine and an escort back to whence you came. Please visualize this about Australia versus America. While you look at an American map of roads and see a veritable varicose vein web all over the place, specifically between states, Australia, they ain't got a lot of them. There's only, I believe, eight states, and many of them are bigger than Texas, which means that at the points where the states cross into each other, you can fairly effective, uh, effectively put a few cops on each road, and it doesn't take that much to kind of border up traffic if you want, or at least watch for people and be able to pull them over if they have the wrong license plate. Also, here's another thing. Australia effectively has the population of California. so. Again, this just makes border closures a lot more of a feasibility than they would here in the United States. And remember, here in the U.S., we did briefly talk about it. Who can forget uh, Andrew Cuomo, the the once and future governor? I'm, I'm kidding. Or am I? Governor of New York going back and forth with Ron DeSantis when Ron DeSantis was saying that he wanted to ban incoming flights from New York, Cuomo was not very happy about that. Now, the state of New South Wales in Australia has been the most targeted throughout COVID. That's because it was hit the hardest with the virus, meaning border states have been more restrictive in how many, if any, people can cross from New South Wales into their territory. In fact, the premier of South Australia, which has been hit the least throughout COVID, has been the most strict, demanding that every single person that crosses in from New South Wales to South Australia be given a risk assessment before they enter. That's 
where that local control has led. Unsurprisingly, this has led to protests and limited violence, something that's also become synonymous with our second issue, vaccine mandates. Construction industry has been shut down for two weeks after violent protests at the CFMEU headquarters in Melbourne. You serve us! You serve us! You serve us! Sally, they were throwing bottles and kicking a dog. Pretty horrendous yesterday in Melbourne. That is sound from a violent protest last weekend where members of a construction workers union in Melbourne stormed their union headquarters after they were mandated to take at least one vaccine shot before coming to work. Video footage of this and similar protests have gone viral on social media, touted as an example by those worldwide who abhor lockdowns and To them, it's social proof of humanity fighting back against the oppressors. And it's no doubt compelling. In fact, I mean, in in the United States, which, like most of Europe, has been nowhere near as strict with its lockdowns, it's hard to imagine that anybody would have the political capital or will to put people back into their homes to issue a curfew, to shut down certain kinds of businesses. But still, only 1,178 deaths. The United States, granted with a 10x population, recorded 1,386 deaths on a single day last week. Now, granted, As I've said before, Australia is an island and it can impose travel restrictions uh, and has a history of quarantine policies with foreigners. But what about its own citizens? What about people just trying to catch a flight from one part of Australia to the next? That Washington Post article says some residents can find an easier flight to Singapore or Los Angeles to other cities within Australia, depending on where you are and where you're trying to go. To me, this is a particularly fascinating question of the political will of both the people and the government. Australian citizens clearly have a will to push for the common good against the virus. They have, by and large, done it very competently. But for how long and at what cost becomes the question. The state of Victoria is now on its sixth lockdown as countrywide cases and deaths are higher than ever. And that's after almost a year where the virus was non-existent. Is there a breaking point? Are we there now? I would like to thank everybody who has chosen to be a member of our Patreon squad. The folks that kick in money. And you want to know what? I also want to thank the people that passed the plate and threw me cash when I was uh, uh, doing the PX3 week last week. I got a bunch of people on Venmo, bunch of people on Cash App, bunch of people on PayPal that threw me money that were like, hey, look, I'm I'm not going to be a patron here and I and, and you can have your reasons for that. That's cool. But they wanted to throw me a little money. I greatly appreciate that. Uh, uh, just to give people a, you know, we'll say this at the end again. PayPal.me slash pay jury. Venmo is just a dash young dash 20 cash app is PX3 cash. If you want to uh, just recognize at any moment that you appreciate this show and you just feel like, you know, yeah, that was a damn good show. I want to throw you a dollar. In fact, I'm listening to you talk about this right now. I want to throw you a dollar. I want to throw you five dollars. I want to throw you uh, uh, ten dollars. Let's say you're rich. Let's say you're, you're, you're really rich. You're up in your Zeppelin. You're high atop your your private K. You're seeing your 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 your, your private dolphins jump out of your private water. Through a private hoop. 
and you're listening to me. You're listening to me talk, and you're like, God damn, how does he know that I have a private Zeppelin with a private K and a private dolphin and a private hoop? This man is on fire. I know what I need to do. I, I need to give him a hundred dollars. I need to give him a thousand dollars. I need to give him ten thousand dollars all via Venmo. And then you check your Venmo and you're like, oh wait, I only have thirty dollars in here. How do I put ten thousand dollars in Venmo? And then you figure all that out. And then you send me ten thousand dollars at Justin Dash Young Dash Twenty on Venmo. That would be great. That would be great. I'd like that. If you're that rich, please send me ten thousand dollars. For the rest of you. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Get on the $3 tier. Get the bonus podcast on Monday. Get the bonus podcast on Thursday. Those are the Sunday, 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 and late editions of the program. The rest of you, I appreciate every inch of your support. And I thank you for it. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our guest today is a political analyst and a betting expert where he writes a gambling column for thelines.com. He was previously on this show where he predicted very, very soundly that the uh, California recall was not going to be close. And he joins us now not only to explain to me Canada but also look ahead to some tasty, tasty political matchups. It's our boy, Evan Scrimshaw. Welcome back to the show, Evan. Glad to be here. Always glad to, always glad to hop on. All right. So you have done an amazing job covering the, uh, your, your predictions for the Canadian election, which uh, wrapped up on Monday night. I know this because I follow you on Twitter and it has uh, been in my feed as something that that I can only imagine reading your predictions in like binary would be like there was definitely a lot of it and it definitely seemed coherent, but I had no idea what the hell was happening. So if, if you can just very, very rudimentarily walk me back to to what what happened from the very beginning of, of, of this election cycle. Sure. In 2019, Justin Trudeau came 13 seats short of a majority government. And for the last two years, he's been polling well enough that he would get a majority if an election was called. So he called an election. He had, um, there were some polls from, there were some polls in the beginning, in the middle of August that were very bad for the liberals that showed them losing, losing badly. And every liberal left wing person in Canada freaked out um our most prominent seat aggregator um wrote a column for mclean's our sort of national um uh, news magazine calling the conservative leader the favorite and everyone melted down and then justin trudeau ended up getting basically the exact same parliament he dissolved six weeks ago liberals are probably going to win a couple more seats conservatives are going to lose a couple of seats but it's going to be a pretty status quo result. And basically what we expected at the beginning of the campaign was the liberals are going to need gains in Quebec. If they want majority government, they didn't get the gains in Quebec. They didn't get majority government. There we go. Okay. So uh, uh, let me, let me see if I can contextualize this. Trudeau was polling well enough to say that he could get the majority government uh, of, from, from a, the little bit that I had read on this part of the idea not unlike kind of Gavin Newsom in terms of, of scheduling when the recall would be kind of presumed that things that the, the, the Delta would not have quite the effect that it had. And maybe we would be in the, the, the full fledged, everything is back to normal post COVID. And then obviously, obviously things did not turn out like that. Was that part of the reason why things got gloomy? Um, I mean, I don't, I sort of don't ever really buy the idea that they did really get gloomy. We can get into that in a minute, but the, the logic for going now yeah. was it's going to, it's going to be worse in two months. Like COVID is going to be worse. 
we're still going to have issues. And so it's either go now or don't go until the spring. And that's six, seven months where shit can happen if you're liberals. And so they just were like, we'll take the election now. We're polling really well. Everyone thinks we're going to win. The conservatives are all out of sorts. Let's get in now before COVID. And the other thing is there's an Ontario provincial election, our biggest province in the spring of next year. And there's a Quebec election, our second biggest province at the end of next year. So the window really would be like March of 2022, or you don't go, or you're not going next year really at all. And so this was the window to get it in, get it done. COVID's going to be pretty okay. And you sort of could lock in the support you have now. And, you know, from what I've heard from liberal insiders, the logic was there's no downside for us. Like our worst case scenario is we get basically the same parliament we just got rid of. Yeah. And the upside is a majority government. So obviously you take the gamble. Didn't work out, but. No, no. One of the things that I really like, uh, you know, in, in, in the cut of your jib is as somebody who is analyzing this from a betting perspective, you tend to be a little bit dismissive of the horse race narratives or at least pricing in which ones are are legit and which ones are not. You obviously never bought the idea that the conservatives had a chance and were relishing in that as things got closer and closer to Election Day. Why? <sighs> There are, okay, I'm going to do this in a way that Americans will understand. Yes. Um, so, you know how in the U.S. Democrats are bleeding votes in places like Youngstown, Southern Ohio, Appalachia, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And doing a lot better in the suburbs. Yes. Cool. That's happening in Canada as well. But the thing is, Canada is way more suburban and urban than the U.S. is. So the conservatives to win government have to win all the seats, have to win a bunch of seats around Toronto in the, the greater Toronto area of the 905, uh, the area code for that region. And the problem is the Tories were down like 15 points, like lost all their seats by like 15 last time. And the only way they can get to the number of seats they need is by winning those seats. And they won, maybe they might win one of them and they're losing two others. And the problem for the Tories was they were never going to they were never going to win those seats because there's a global realignment happening. Right-wing parties are doing much worse in seats like this. Yeah. Left-wing parties are doing much better in seats like this. And so realignment, like if you can't win those seats in Ontario, you can't win government. They were never going to win those seats in Ontario. They were never going to win government. Now, one of the other elements of Canadian politics, at least by, you know, uh, whatever I'm uh, able to make out peering northward over the border is the the other left wing party that is not the liberal party. And and specifically uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh, if I'm getting that name correct, becoming sure. a bit of a, a celebrity in and of himself. Uh, how did that party fare in this election? Uh, they're currently up three seats net, I think. Um, not well, because what happened was, um, Jagme became too focused on being a TikTok star and forgot to actually <laughs> run a campaign designed to win seats in the House of Commons. I wrote a, I wrote a thing last night. I wrote a recap last night. It's on my Substack. Uh, and I, Jagme needs to resign. I voted for his party. I, I'm not a huge fan of the liberals. Um, I voted for his party. I, I, I need him to resign. I need him to, to resign tomorrow. Like I'm done with this guy. He run a proper campaign. He was going to safe liberal seats with four days left that he had no hope of winning. Yeah. And it's just like, no, you gotta, oh, you gotta do better than this, man. You gotta know what you're doing. And if you can't, if you can't run a campaign designed to win any seats, then get out of the way and let someone else do it. So th- th- this is becoming too much of a cult of, of celebrity for him, and he is not doing things like uh, targeting the, 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 the political goals that you actually need to do, the, the real X's and O's of how you advance your party's uh, uh, influence. Yeah, there's a, there's a seat in downtown Toronto. Um, I, I, I don't want to get like too, too deep into any of this stuff because we're still waiting on some mail ballots, which are yeah. going to change like the total results. But like I tweeted a few weeks ago, like repeatedly for weeks, it's just like, oh yeah, the NDP are going to win Davenport. Like that's just like a, a deadlock. Like you can just take down one to the bank. They're going to win that. It's going to be easy. They lost it. Or they're currently losing it. They lost the the seat they, they used to hold in Windsor to the liberals. Like they couldn't get that one back. Like they're just, they sucked. They sucked last night. 
And I don't yeah. know why it's un- it's indefensible. And if you're doing an event in Kingston with four days left, you and you're not doing events in Davenport, I don't know what you're doing. He needs to go. I'm so done with him. Oh, we're getting some Canadian stuff in. I'll tell you what, I never want to get another Canadian email again saying, please cover Canadian politics. This is it for the year. I love it. I love we're getting we're getting really deep into it now. uh, uh, The conservatives. What was their tact, you know, to to attack Trudeau or, or, or the liberals? And why didn't it resonate? Their attack on the liberals was we're having an unnecessary election, which is a really dumb argument because you need to give an actual vision of what you would do in office, not just complain that they called that the liberals called an election. Um, but the problem for the problem for the conservatives is they have like two things they're trying to do at the same time, which is they're trying to win those band of seats uh, like North East and West of Toronto, but also their party membership is all in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and like rural BC. And the membership are crazy. The membership are gun nuts and pro-lifers. And they're the voters they need to win are well-off suburbanites. Yeah. And those two things don't work. So uh, O'Toole was the leader for the conservatives in this in this go round. And, and from the little bit of, of research that I did, it, it seemed like he was more on the moderate side. So they could appeal more to those uh, uh, Toronto suburbanites. So he he is a moderate himself. He tacked right in the leadership election to beat Peter McKay, who used to who, who, who's like a well-known moderate figure and actually might have done done pretty well in the in the, in the suburbs. Um, and then tried to tack back to the center and that never worked. You can't double tack. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the center looked, the center just saw right through us through, through him. And, and so there just really wasn't a consistent message. Uh, uh the, I got an email, uh, a Canadian email, uh, with, with one of our, 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 our best listeners, Ken, who made, made the point, uh, you know, questioning whether or not this is more of a rightward trajectory for the conservatives since, you know, this, this did not seem to work. A muddled message did not seem to work. So maybe in the future they will tack more, right. Is that something that you think is possible? I mean, Aaron O'Toole is going to need to try and keep his caucus together and his caucus are also crazy people. So he's probably going to have to tack. He's probably gonna have to say things to keep his job Yeah, that are going to come back to bite him in the way that Mitt Romney's like self-deportation line you know, was the the greatest gift from God to the Obama campaign in 2012. He's going to have to say increasing crazy things like a, a leading Canadian pro-life group has already come out and blamed the election results on his tack to the center, which is not true. But if that's what his base is saying, it, it's notable. And yeah, it probably will lead to a rightward shift. Trudeau. So he does not uh, get his majority. He does not uh, lose uh, uh, significantly any seats or any seats at all. Right. He, he He's going to be slightly up from where he was before. Is there any political consequence for him calling the election and not getting the majority? No, because there's no viable there's no viable liberal who isn't. So we all know who the next liberal leader is going to be. It's his deputy, Christian Freeland. Um, Christopher Freeland is not going to knife Justin Trudeau. Trudeau, people forget that Justin Trudeau took the Liberal Party from third place back into government in one election. Yeah. And so Trudeau's a made man in the Liberal Party. His father was prime minister for, I think, 15 years combined. Um, Like he was leader of that party for, you know, 16 years. Like he's a made man. They're never going to get rid of a Trudeau. And the thing is, he's he's pretty young. Like he's, he's 50 only. So. Wow. He looks great for 50. I would have thought younger. Yeah. He was born in, uh, or no, he's 49 now. He turned, he was born Christmas day, 71. So yeah, he turns 50 at the end of the year. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, like, Although I guess not those, those, those blackface photos did look pretty worn. So I guess that does <sighs> make sense. Oh my God. My favorite, my favorite thing is I, so I was like a de facto therapist for liberals this entire <laughs> campaign. Despite the fact that I didn't vote for this political party, liberals love me for reasons. Yeah. Um, 
and people people DM to me like, oh, is the blackface is the new blackface photo gonna like cost us the election? And I'm like, we literally didn't get rid of him the first time over blackface. Yeah, so you think blackface 2.0 is gonna is gonna is gonna cost us? I think the blackface is priced in with Trudeau at this point. Uh, uh, Canadians, all right, Canadians clearly don't care. So so uh, he he is uh, uh, locked in now. How long until he would have to call another another uh, election? So it's four year it's four year terms in Canada. Um, in theory, uh, minority parliament can always can always be dissolved faster. Although I I highly doubt he will he will go to the polls of his own volition. Um, I kind of I I kind of my my general guess is always two years with a majority government or with a minority government. So like twenty three end of twenty three early twenty four would be my guess for when the next election will be. But it could go to twenty five. All right. Well, there we go. Uh, uh, any other uh, uh, big uh, things of note for the Canadian election before we move on? Yeah, if you're thinking that the summer, if you're thinking that like uh, Republicans are suddenly going to get like Mitt Romney or even Donald Trump 2016 margins in South Lake, Texas or Forsyth or the Philadelphia caller or the wow, or any of these places in any of these swing states in 2022, you're wrong in Canada. It just proves it again. Wait, sorry. Say, say that again. If, if, if you I think, think the Republicans, if you think the Republicans are going to get substantially better results in 2022 in okay. educated, wealthy, socially liberal suburbs, gotcha. You're wrong. Okay, so let's let let's get into this because this, I believe, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is your 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 operating inefficiency. This this uh, a thing that you seem to have honed in on. That that has kind of guided not only your your betting strategies in America and Canada, but also the world. The idea that worldwide we have increasing populations and uh, general education levels and income levels in these suburbs. They are increasingly in in the past they were more either uh, a red to purple. Now they are turning more solid blue. I take it from everything that you have said up till now, you have seen nothing in this election that has deterred you. Indeed, you are more locked in than ever. Yes. So um, I'm gay. And the only reason I say this is because like, I have thought about this a lot, which is in 2013, I went to Ohio with my mother and we went to Cleveland, Cincinnati and Canton. Okay. Um, in Cincinnati, we got lunch at a taco place right by the water. It was great. And we were sitting there and the, the, the guys at her table over from us, it was a gay couple and they weren't noticeably gay or anything, but I was still in the closet at the time. Yeah. And I watched that sort of interaction very closely. And I, it, it gave me a lot of hope that, you know, maybe I could have that, that I could find that, that I could, that I could actually experience the love that I, 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 I want, I wanted, uh, so badly. And, the next day we drove to Canton, but we took a, we took a detour instead of just going right back up the I-71. Yep. We went East and then we drove up. And so we got lunch at an Applebee's in Ross County, Ohio. Okay. That Applebee's had Fox news on television. Yep. And every third word out of that, out of, out of uh, in that diner was either the N word or some homophobic epitaph. Ross okay. County, Ohio voted for Mitt Romney by one point. It voted for Donald Trump by 33 last time. Yeah. I would never feel comfortable being with the man I love in a place like Ross County, Ohio. And all these places that are trending right, I would never feel comfortable being open and, 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 and sort of real with who I am in those places. And okay. all the places that are trending left, South Lake, Texas, Forsyth, Georgia, the Philadelphia caller. Oh, yeah, I'd have no problem. And the thing is, all of the places... In Canada, where I would feel comfortable and open, liberals dominated last night. All the places in Australia where I'd feel open and good about it, trending to the left super fast. All the places in the UK where I'd feel super comfortable and open are trending left. It's the same trend everywhere. It's the same thing everywhere. And Americans who sit there and go, ah, but Donald Trump's off the ballot. Therefore, all these suburban trends are going to reverse. Okay. So was Donald Trump the reason why it happened in Australia and Britain? And Canada and Canada again. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree that I think that are uh, uh, the, the conventional wisdom of Donald Trump not being there is is something that I think even Republicans will will 
uh, understand how much Donald Trump kind of papered over some of the flaws in in their parties get out the vote uh, stuff in the past because he did excite the people that were very excited for him, whether or not yeah. that was making new voters or voters in the places that you were talking about. That is a far different story. Yeah. And the thing, the thing, the thing, the thing is that in, in the Georgia runoffs, we saw two things happen, which were the suburbs didn't really move. You got pockets of extremely wealthy Atlanta voting more Republican. Yeah. But also also did better in uh, like Ossoff did better in uh, Gwinnett than Biden did, I think. And the thing is, the county with the biggest swing from 2018, the 2018 governor's race, to the 2021 Senate race was Forsyth, was white only until the 90s Forsyth. And that's with Donald Trump off the ballot. That's with Donald Trump no longer president or no, no longer about to be president. Yeah. In the that runoff. Of, in, in, yeah. in, yeah. In the idea, the idea that we're like Republicans are going to just like get huge swings back to them in the suburbs is like theoretically possible, right? In that, like, it is a thing that you can say, but all the evidence we have of international elections say it's not happening because it was never about Trump. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I, 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 I love a theory. I love a big grand unifying theory. So I love the fact that you, that, that you have one on this, but I want to see if we can apply it to a few things going forward. You, uh, were, let me, number one, give you your flowers on this one. You were extraordinarily, uh, uh, down on the idea that the recall in California would even be close. And indeed, it was not much like our our other guest, uh, uh, Josh Spivak, who follows recalls. His one of his grand unifying theories is that recalls usually wind up at the same percentage as the last election, and indeed, it tracked pretty close for Gavin. Uh, no one recall tracked very close, uh, if not slightly northward, of his uh, last re-election or his his uh, election to governor. And so, congratulations on that. So let's look forward. Thank you. Yes. Virgi- Virginia, you are extraordinarily uh, bullish on McAuliffe. And so far, the polls very much in your favor. It looks like McAuliffe has a very, very healthy lead. The only argument that I could even muster to throw at you uh, at this is that Biden's approval rating has sank. Virginia has in the past been a reflection on uh, uh, the the president one year in, and that does not look like it's trending in the right direction for McAuliffe. Is your opinion shaken in the least? No, uh, because the thing is, so even even if you accept that Biden's approval is down right now, um, but you would still expect that Biden would be pretty substantially above water in Virginia, even with a three point negative approval rating nationally. Uh, maybe not, maybe not substantially, but you'd expect his approval to be, you know, plus three, plus four, or four, plus five right now in Virginia, just on a based on, based on where it was. So if he was yeah. uh, up, up plus eight in Virginia and now he is down three, so he would still be up plus five. Yeah. Um, the other thing is um, the polling that we've seen of the Virginia race that has it close has either been Republican internals or polls that are probably oversampling. Like they're trying to overcorrect for the Trump pulling this. And so they're probably going to end up underestimating Democrats, which is what happened with the 2017 polls. Because remember, do you remember the morning Joe panel? The morning of uh, the morning of the 2017 Virginia governor's race? I The morning Joe panel? No, I do not. Every single person on the panel thought that Ed Gillespie was going to win. And the reasons listed were MS-13 and Donna Brazil's book. Well, that's why people should not watch MSNBC. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm just saying like the yeah. conventional wisdom on that race was a toss up, if not our leaning. And then uh, Northam won one by nine. And the yeah. thing is the only way Republicans can win is by getting sky high turnout amongst sky high Trump level turnout in the rural congressional districts that he won last time. Yep. And then also get about 20 points of reversion in the Northern Virginia suburbs. So and you really way, need, you, you, you need to, you need to depress those DC suburbs. Yes. You need to do a lot better in the DC suburbs and you need to do as well as Trump in the rurals. And the thing is we know 
so from us from australia because the the thing that people have always said is like well okay so like what if you ran like a moderate could you do better in the suburbs you can we know this because in 2016 the australian right ran a pro-gay marriage moderate and yeah. in 2019 ran an anti-gay marriage like her i don't want to call them like hard right but like a, a more staunchly conservative figure and in 2016 they did a lot better in the urban and suburban seats but they got smashed in the rural and regional areas and then in 2019 they did better in all the rural and regional areas and got smashed in the suburbs yeah so you can't stitch the you can't stitch the trump combo in the rurals together with the like moderate combo in the suburbs and that's why the Virginia Republicans can't win. So let me just read you the the, the last few polls here. This is uh, uh, reading off uh, uh, Real Clear Politics. The last few over the last week or so. Monmouth, McAuliffe plus five. Washington Post, McAuliffe plus three. VCU, McAuliffe plus nine. That's his best. Emerson, McAuliffe plus four. It's only an RCP average of 4.4 because of Trafalgar which has McAuliffe plus one. When you're looking at polls, where are you at on, on, on Trafalgar? They've, they've been a bit of a, a, a controversial topic over the last five to uh, eight years. Trafalgar is the guy at a roulette table who bets on black every time and then pretends he's a genius. If you get, if black comes up three times in a row, Trafalgar <laughs> bets on a right wing polling miss. On the polls, underestimating Republicans. Yes. Claims they're geniuses when the polls are right. And then just like completely ignores the fact that they can't poll for shit. Right. Newsom, they had Newsom surviving the recall by nine. They had better, they had Ted Cruz winning by nine. Uh, he won by two and a half. Newsom's going to win by like 24, 25. I don't know if we have full counts there yet. I have lots of stuff paying attention. Um, they had, Brian Kemp beating Stacey Abrams by 12 in 2018. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, they had the GOP winning like five states that they didn't end up winning this year. Uh, he did a podcast with, I think it was the National Review, where he said, no way, no chance, it's not happening to Joe Biden winning Georgia. <laughs> well, he also, Trafalgar, I, I think, Trafalgar's I think, not good and Trafalgar doesn't know how to poll. And the thing is, if you just bet on a right-wing polling miss all the time and then claim you're right, the 35% of the time you're right. Like that's not polling. That's guesswork. And we should treat it as what it is. Okay. Devil's devil's advocate though. How much of that can just be applied to all polling? I mean, if your polling has methodologies in terms of their sampling and, and yes, Trafalgar's is that, that their market inefficiency is that people are not catching these uh, uh, Republican uh, Republican voters, but that does seem to be a consistent thing. Now, granted, he's a lot chestier and is out there talking about stuff a lot more than many other polling outfits, which is, I think, also what colors some of this. I mean, if you're I mean, if your argument is that most U.S. polling sucks, I'm not going to disagree with that statement. But that doesn't mean Trafalgar is good. It just means they sure. it just means that they it just means that they suck in the same way that everyone else sucks. Although I will say, by the way, on that Emerson poll, uh, I think Terry McAuliffe had like a 30 point lead with black voters in that poll. So take that Emerson poll with like the biggest grain of salt you can, because if Terry McAuliffe only wins black voters by like 30, um, I have a, it was 37. I think now that I think about it, uh, I've got a bridge to sell you. He's going to do a lot better than that. He's going to do yeah. a lot better than that. Obviously Biden yeah. won black voters in Virginia by 81 last time. Gotcha. Not, that's not happening. All right. One last thing. And then I'll get you out of here. Uh, the rumor is as yet announced officially that Beto O'Rourke will, uh, dust off his campaign and shoes, uh, for the, uh, third time once, of course, famously against Ted Cruz once for the presidency of the United States. And now against Greg Abbott, the sitting governor of Texas, who would be one of the loudest uh, campaigns of the midterms here in the U.S. Your initial thoughts? It's going to be closer than people think, but Abbott, uh, Greg Abbott's not going to lose. Um, I think Beto is a worse candidate than people give him credit for. But the thing that Beto does is he's going to raise a ton of money. Oh my god! It's going to be raise, it's, it's going to be a GDP of, of certain countries. Oh yeah. yeah, it's going to be yeah, it's going to be yeah, it's going to be. The GDP of a small island. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And the thing is, I don't, I, I, I don't really respect Beto very much, honestly. Like I thought his presidential campaign was a joke. I never really thought he had a chance to win in 2018. Like this is not coming from some like pro better person. Yeah. But the thing is, is that Greg Abbott won by 13 last time running against a candidate with no money, no energy, no attention. Yeah. All of those things are going to go. All of those things go away this time. It's a Trump five and a half state. It's probably realistically going to be like a Trump plus four electorate, given, you know, it's probably about a point and a half in terms of the turnout differentials, because all those low propensity Trump voters are not going to turn out again. And the thing is, if Beto runs a good campaign, massive caveat caveat on that. I'm not saying he's going to. I'm saying if he does, if he focuses all of his energy on Colin, Denton, Tarrant, Hayes, and Williamson, like if he really runs a campaign, that can flip the D, that can flip the Dallas suburbs, and can flip the Austin suburbs or the DFW quad. I don't want to get. I don't want people from Fort Worth yelling at me. Yep. Um, he can run. He can run a genuinely good campaign. He can. He can get it close. And the thing about getting it close is that's state house seats. That's state senate seats. That's even potentially congressional districts, depending on how the maps are drawn. That become interesting. It's it's party building in a way that I think Democrats need to do in Texas. I don't think he has a realistic chance to win. Although if Greg Abbott is going to continue to do just like, like crazy things, it could get competitive. I mean, Greg Abbott really does seem to be running a campaign or running, running government right now in a way singularly designed to see how quickly you can flip Colin and Denton. I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I said, uh, here on on the show after the abortion law that if you're looking to excite the places where liberals are 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 growing uh in 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 the state of Texas then a law like that is the thing to do and whether or not they 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 meant it to even you know a, a exist and not get stayed by the Supreme Court is another question in and of itself but uh, you know Beto I'm I'm with you almost entirely on on the takes on Beto I thought that he ran you know, a uh, uh, half a good campaign against Cruz is his final few months. I thought were an absolute disaster. I thought his, uh, you know, his his presidential campaign. If it were revealed in a magazine article that it was a a a practical joke that went too far by the Pod Save America producers, then then I would totally believe it. But this is something where I think you know. He's going to have problems because he is fe- he is so well defined for a candidate that hasn't really won much, but I think he's going to raise a ton of money and he's an avatar at the very least that, you know, uh, seems like people want to push him over the top, at least on on some level. But you're right. It really would depend on him effectively. Just what li- living in, in the suburbs of, of Dallas and Houston and Austin, let's not let, let's not give Austin. Let's not forget Austin. But yes, basically, the thing about the thing about like the thing that I always hear about Beto because I've written I wrote about this a bunch in the spring before he said he wasn't running, and now he's like probably gonna run. Um, the thing about Beto is that like people always come out because like oh the gun stuff oh the presidential campaign like made him say too many things that are going to be like detrimental to a to a Texas elector. Yeah, and those feel like the same takes that like people genuinely thought John Ossoff had lost the runoffs the day he went to the Slutty Vegan, the 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 vegan the, the vegan restaurant on Small Business Sunday Saturday, um, because people are like that's not how you win in the South. It's like no, it's actually how you win in Atlanta when seventy yeah. percent of the votes are cast in the Atlanta Metro, and this isn't the seventies anymore. I I, like, I I I do think that there is a measurable difference between uh, a guy going and get some uh, uh, like a a, a a a satan sloppy Joe and saying hell yes we're gonna take your AR fifteens though or anybody who owns an AR fifteen voting for Beto anyways. Mm, I I I do think that gun rights mean they're 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 a tip of the iceberg issue for texas uh they are they they mean yeah, more than just that sure sure but in the same way that sec football just means more in the south like the thing you have to remember is that how many people in texas aren't weren't born in texas like think about all the people who have moved into austin from california in the last 
10 years, right? I mean, or you're talking you're talking to one, literally. I know, right I, now. I, I, I know I'm literally <laughs> talking to one. That's why I made the point. Like, you didn't grow up with the, like, gun fetish. None no. of these people grew up with the gun fetish. And the thing is... I, 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 don't, I don't think it's a gun fetish, though. I, I don't think it's just that. I, I do think that, that there is there is a... Again, it, it connects to a personal freedom thing that that does mean something different. And so... That being said, okay, but okay, I, but I, I, okay, I, I, okay, I don't, but I don't think, think it's a killer. Gabbard. I don't think it's a killer. I think it's going to be Luther the thing Gabbard. that's going to run against Luther Gabbard. You don't get to talk yeah. about personal freedom when you signed a six week abortion ban. And I mean, well, watch like, everything else. <laughs> you, he's I, know, it's not, I know, but it's not going to work. Yeah. Is my point. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on what work means, right? Like, I mean, uh, you know, he's going to he's going to be he's going to be in a toss up selection between our race on October first, twenty twenty two. That's that's a failure. That's a failure for Greg Abbott. If if this is so, I mean, I guess what would you set the spread at? I'd say Abbott wins by four. Four, and you would take uh, you would take Beto plus four. Yes, thousand percent. Give me any any sports book listening to this conversation right now. Give me that bet right now. I'll max bet it, and then I'll max bet it again. Oh, I love it. I love it. Evan Scrimshaw, uh, uh, just a delight every time we get to chat. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, follow me on Twitter at E Scrimshaw, uh, E S C R I M S H A W. Follow my writing at the at my Substack, Scrimshaw Unscripted. Um, I write a weekly political betting column for the Lions, which I always tweet out on Twitter. Um, not to not to be too much of a promotional shill. Uh, no, please shill it out. I called the Tories to lose seats in my Canada preview for the lines. They're currently down three seats and probably going to lose more with mail ballots. The liberal, I called the liberals to win again. They've won. And I called the liberals to uh, get above it's 160 or above where it was the seat total. And on mail ballots, they're probably going to get to 160, if not 161 or 162. And that is includes a run of election calls where Newsom to Newsom to win again. Called it right. Eric Adams to win New York City mayor. Called it right. Uh, Andrew Cuomo to resign. Got that one right. And Chantal Brown to uh, to win again in uh, or to win the Ohio 11th primary. So if you're following, if you're not following my tips over the lines, you're losing money. He's on. He's on a heater, folks. Just just ride Scrimshaw and 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 laugh all the way to the bank. Uh, uh, so, so you would say your, your, your best bet now is what on the uh, last thing on the way out? Uh, there's a German election. I just read of the German election for, uh, for Sunday. Um, the social democratic leader to be the next, to be the next, to be chancellor at the end of 2021. He's like a minus two fifty favorites, like 65 cents. I'll predict it. Just go hammer that. He's going to win. We don't know exactly what coalition he's going to get, but he's going to win. And just take the free money. Uh, this is so degenerate. I can't help but hammer it. It's definitely happening. Evan Scrimshaw, thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, bud. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you want to say thank you, Thank you to Evan Scrimshaw for giving you a degenerate political bet. You can go to px3guest.com. Our email is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3. Tweets are live streams are at px3live.com. Our podcast, which you can share with your friends and family, is px3podcast.com. And you can get all of our merch at politicsmerch.com. Hey, one more time on the one-time payments. PayPal me slash payjury is how you do that on PayPal. PayPal.me, in case you ain't never heard of URL before. On Venmo, I'm Justin-Young-20. On the Cash app, it is PX3Cash. And if you want to send me a physical item of any kind, You can do so. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, if you always want to get our bonus content, it is found at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the show like these fine folks on the Titanic. $10 tier. 
including Idris Arslanian, DJ Katie Mack, Meister, Dr. G, Lord Scale, Dakinse, Anile, Admiral Flapjack, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Pete Spicery, 70s TV salesman or spy, D. Really. Uh, vote for Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Zombie Doc Edison, no mention on the podcast, please. Dot com junkie DP4 Bongo Pop Gold Jewish Lives Matter. Ye old pinball shop, John Snuffies off Route 44. Brian, Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert. Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, D. Laser, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike, the Jen, Will, J. Pink, and Andrew. If you would like your name added to this little roll call, all you got to do is head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com and sign up at the $10 tier. That's it for this episode next time on the Friday episode of the show, we are joined once again by Republican strategist and pollster, Michael Cohen. We've heard a very pessimistic view for Youngkin over McAuliffe on this episode. We get a likely more positive view of the race from a partisan, but I want to, if it's possible, I want to see how it happens, and I'm going to ask Cohen exactly the the, the issues, if he's got any answer for, for what Scrimshaw said today. All right. That's it. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio. Politics. Politics. Politics.